And I'll tell you, um, it nearly sucked the life out of me. And I'm not joking at all. I'm not joking at all. I come from a dynamic Christian background. My parents had been missionaries in Africa. I joined the Adventist church, well, because of a girl and also because of some beautiful truths I saw there. But those truths just got talked to death until the point where my enthusiasm for being a passionate follower of Jesus Christ started to die. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Well, I want to invite some of my friends here on stage. They are various people that some of you maybe know, some of you maybe do not know them, but I am excited to introduce them to you. And just so you know, we actually, as a ministry, donated some funds to uh, help the work there. So thank you for your generosity in what you give and offering goes to actual funding of mission work. And so we're so thrilled for just the ability to provide for that. And uh, we're still planning on doing one uh, meaningful project in Papua New Guinea. Uh, We're still looking at projectors and computers that we're going to be sending over. So that is still going to be happening. So do not forget about that as well. Well, I want to look to my left and uh, introduce to you Jason Brooks. He's the technical advisor for ADRA, uh, working with water, sanitation, and hygiene. And then next to him is Anita Roberts. She has been part of this community for many years. I call her Pastor Roberts. Uh, She is uh, genuinely a faithful believer of Jesus, but also comes having been part of mission work in her childhood uh, in South America. And then next to her is Sean Smith. He is a graduate of Loma Linda University School of Pharmacy. He is a doctor. Woo! Dr. Smith. He's single. Uh, that's a whole nother story, ladies. Afterwards, you can talk. Sorry, bro. Throwing you under the... No, that's good. I'm serious. I'm serious. But he um, launched an incredible thing in the high desert. I won't even give it away. I want you to kind of capture that. So he's going to share what he and a really good friend of his who was supposed to be with us here uh, but couldn't be, Bowtie Brian. And then Terry Swenson chaplain of our university. We are so thrilled to have him here as well. So thank you, the four of you. Well, I want to just start off with just asking this very basic question, kind of getting you guys all primed for just kind of missions and where we can go as a community, where this movement needs you. And so they're going to share from their own various perspectives, kind of uh, popcorn style, whichever one of you would like to go first, and uh, just sharing what has been your experience with missions or what are you doing for the kingdom right now with your talents and why? Why are you doing that? So feel free. I couldn't think of anyone better but uh, Chaplain Terry Swenson. I treated you nice when you went to school here. Ladies, forget about him. Just no, no, not true. Um, Wow. Missions. 
I, I was watching the video and I was deeply moved. And I've had the opportunity to go to different places in the world. And we can do so much with what we have. And I applaud you for doing that and funding that. But as I was watching that video, I thought, we are the mission field. When I was a little boy, we go to send and save everyone else. But in America, we're the mission field. I was thinking maybe we should do a video like this of South Central LA or parts of the Central Valley or right across the street or, you know what, right here. And so God has led me through one way or another to work with young adults and uh, young people for all these years. And being at Loma Linda, we are the world. Um, I'm always stunned by our demographics, uh, 80 to 90 different countries, 65 different religions, denominations, belief and not. And the call to be a follower of Christ, maybe where we're at now, is even the greatest calling that we can have. It's been a blessing to work here. I guess we'll go right down the row. Yeah. Um, hello, everybody. Honored to be here. Um, awesome to be back here as an alumni. Um, any School of Pharmacy students in here? Anybody? Yeah, let's go. All right. Um, I know it's a small group that comes out to these things. We're too busy studying pharmacology, as most of you hate. Um, so... I would say that my journey kind of started here, um, and I had an opportunity uh, in my P1 year, first year student, to write a personal statement, and a, like a personal mission statement. And I kind of looked no further than our mission statement here at the university, right, to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't put anything on the paper because I said, there really is no greater mission than the one we have at this university. So in a way, I kind of adopted that mission as my personal mission. And along the journey, I think it became really important uh, for me to pursue this question, what does it mean to live this out? How can we actually live this out in real life? And it sounds like you all have been discussing that over the past few weeks. For me, uh, I pursued this journey with friends, with people that I was close with, because trying to pursue such a, a high calling is really, really hard to do alone. In fact, it's impossible to do alone. Even Jesus Christ himself needed help in sharing the mission and living out his calling. And so I kind of banded up with a group of brothers. And from that point forward, uh, we kind of started studying, started looking at how can we make a meaningful impact in our community. And we came across a sermon that we had listened to, I believe here on campus, and it was a sermon that focused on uh, the text in the Bible that says that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we started studying this idea, text, and we found that there was a unique link between material poverty and spiritual poverty. The theocracy that, that Israel was in the time that when God created it, um, it was really designed, all the, the laws and the rules were designed to minimize poverty, right? To take care of the orphan, the widow, those who are, who are poor. 
And then Jesus comes in his first sermon and he says, I come to bring good news to the poor when he's reading from the, the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue. And then later says that he was a man who, you know, uh, didn't have a home. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man doesn't have a place to lay down his head. And so we find the culmination of Jesus' mission as he's identifying most with those uh, most in need. And so as I was pursuing this with that group of friends, we started saying, well, this sounds good theologically, but what does it look like to do in practice? And we went out, medical mission trips, um, and then as Pastor Terry said, there's a lot of need here in our community. And that was one of the things that him and other chaplains and other mentors had told me, hey, there's a lot of need here in the community. And so going into San Bernardino, working uh, with the homeless population, working with those really helped me to understand how the material poverty and the spiritual poverty connected. Because in many ways, when we have uh, an, an opportunity to interact with people and get to know their stories, we find that we're not all that much different than someone who's struggling. And so, because we're all struggling, right? And so through that experience, I was able to see that the only difference between them and me, maybe it's my education, which in many ways, our intellect, the gifts that we've been given, um, the food that was put on our table that when we were young, um, all, the, all these things built up to uh, be blessings and grace in our lives that we never really earned. And so through that, I realized my need for God because I realized I wasn't so self-made. And so through that process, I, I learned that spiritual poverty, finding and realizing that you have a need for God, uh, really propelled me and a group of friends into starting a, a clinic here in the high desert after I graduated from pharmacy school. We started out doing COVID-19 policies and procedures and testing for homeless shelters. And uh, it's a great opportunity because through this experience, I now, as a faculty member and professor at Western, which is a pharmacy school a little bit a ways away, about 30 miles west of here, I was actually able to train them and mentor them and kind of help them to see uh, th their own spiritual poverty as well and minister beyond this Loma Linda campus. So there's a lot of details in with uh, starting the clinic, but um, we don't have time for that today. And now um, I do want to mention this one thing because uh, Brian said this was so interesting. He said this is a government-funded clinic that is a nonprofit but has a Christian mission and vision. What? That is, that's amazing. We've been blessed to receive funding from the city of Victorville, and they've done so regardless of our stance on, you know, wanting to be able to minister in the way that we do, which has been a huge blessing. So that kind of public-private partnership has been huge in getting grant funding because as a nonprofit, you know, donations and grant funding are really the major way to make it happen. So through residency, I was able to kind of learn how to do it so that when I ended up becoming a faculty member, I was able to, to put it into place. And um, I would say that without that kind of bond of friendship, it would have been really difficult uh, to make it happen. And, I, you know, I want to say that I'm the second string for today. Uh, Dr. Bowtie Bryan was, uh, was here on the panel, and uh, he was unable to make it. Uh, he got LASIK surgery. Uh, he was blind, and now he can see. So Amen. He's, uh, he's, he's doing well recovering. And so, uh, yeah, him and I have been good friends. We went to pharmacy school together and have maintained friends through the faith. 
um, which has helped us get through a lot. That's awesome. You know, I want to really encourage you while you're here at school, find like-minded believers that you can partner with later in life. You know, you don't just need to leave here alone, but you can leave with partners in ministry for the kingdom. So give them my regards, man. All right. So your question is, what have been your experience with missions or what are we doing now? And I, we've heard from Terry and from Brian. I want to go back a little bit, looking back. I think we look to the future, but for me, um, I guess I want to ask a question, first of all. How many of you have ever heard of the College of Medical Evangelists? Raise your hands. Like a few. Okay. <laughs> you are <laughs> the College of Medical Evangelists. Loma Linda University, once upon a time, was the College of Medical Evangelists. And that's how it started. Um, so many, many, many years ago, uh, there was someone here on this campus named uh, Elmer Botsford who felt the call to missions and ended up at a post in the jungles in the border between Brazil and Bolivia at a little town called Guayara Marin. Tiny little post. He went because there was a need and he felt like that's where God was calling him to go. I don't know how long before he was there that he intersected with a young man that was in his late teens that had had a terrible accident and his leg was becoming all gangrene. And by the time he got to that clinic, the doctor said, your leg needs to be amputated. So you're talking about probably 65, 70 years ago and he begged, he said, doctor, please, you might as well just let me die. How could I live my life without a leg in the middle of a jungle? Um, so Dr. Botsford decided to operate and uh, open the bone. It was, I don't even know how to say this in English. Fisudalo, <laughs> but anyways, it was cracked and all these things that he had to do. Um, managed to save that leg. And um, the man said, I don't have any money to pay you. So what I can offer is I'll stay here and I will work for you as long as you think I should pay. So he stayed for a year. And he learned the trade, but he also learned about the love of Jesus. So you had the intersection of somebody that had a passion for missions that left this place and the comfort of Southern California even then and ended up in a jungle and then a man that was destitute had, not, had he not been helped. Well, that man was Jose, and Jose was my dad. And Elmer Botsford was whom we call Grandpa Botsford. Um, my life, I cannot imagine what my life would have been like if my dad had stayed there. Um, I don't know if he would have survived, um, but because of Dr. Botsford, he not only did, he learned to be his assistant. After a period of time, my dad ended up at a small little university now. It was a school then in Cochabamba, Bolivia, an Adventist school. And I finished secondary school there. And then he went to another Adventist school in Peru and became a pastor. And uh, the story goes on. Then I came here. Um, and then, as Pastor Phil just said, then it becomes your story. 
It ceases to be the passion of somebody else. My dad had a passion for mission. He had a love for the Lord. I can't even begin to tell you. My dad died pretty young. Part of it is because in his 60s, that leg kind of gave out. He did have to have it amputated. And um, anyways, that's a, a, a sad part of our story because he left us. He was only 67. But you know, um, it's a legacy that he left, a faith, a journey of faith and trust in the Lord. Um, and then we take that. Then it becomes my personal story. It becomes my personal passion. So it is, what is the need that I see that God is calling me um, to intersect with? What is my passion? And I, that is my question for each of you. You know, as you journey through this, um, you know, campus here as a student, what is, you know, what is God calling you to do? What opportunities may you have? Yes, you go on mission trips, and those are kind of like short vacations that are a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I have gone on some of those. But then for the long run, what would your life mission, your purpose will become? You know, the enemy is very good at presenting counterfeits. That is his specialty. He knows what makes you tick and what makes me tick. So my word as far as mission is, you know, you know, God calls us to love him with all our hearts, with all our mind, and with our souls. And then he calls us to love others. And so when we ask ourselves, so what is our mission? That's what we have to look at and say, okay, these are my gifts. And how can I love the Lord with all my heart, mind, and soul, and then love others? Amen. Wow. You came about because of the faithfulness of one student who left this place and said, I'm going to go and answer the call. And your dad was given another 50 years of life to do something incredible for the kingdom. And here you are today, Austin, family. That's amazing. Well, my story didn't begin generations ago in the Adventist church. In fact, I didn't join the church until I was about 20 years old. At that time, it was mainly because I was in love with an Adventist girl who wouldn't marry me otherwise. <laughs> um, I love truth. the honesty. We got to clap little bit for of that. Truth. And I did something that I would not recommend. Um, six months later, I was enrolled in the theology program studying to be a minister <laughs> at a very conservative Adventist school. And I'll tell you, um, it nearly sucked the life out of me. And I'm not joking at all. I'm not joking at all. I come from a dynamic Christian background. My parents had been missionaries in Africa. I joined the Adventist church, well, because of a girl and also because of some beautiful truths I saw there. But those truths just got talked to death until the point where my enthusiasm for being a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, started to die. And God had mercy and compassion on me and my wife by that point. And using the background that I had uh, as a missionary kid, God calls us into international service. 
not because of the great things that we would accomplish, uh, because that's what it took to save me. And the fact is, I don't know if I'd still be in the church today if I hadn't found a place to serve. And if it hadn't been for meeting some of the most dynamic, incredible people anywhere, you know, when, when I saw that video and saw that just enthusiasm, I thought, I know Jasper's all over the world, and it keeps me going. I work for ADRA, the Adventist Development and Relief Agency that employs over 7,000 people around the world, 99% of them working in the country where they were born, ministering in the language that they were born speaking. And many of them risk their lives on a daily basis because of the passion to serve the most vulnerable in their communities in the country. And I'm just, I play a small support role, but it is literally the best job I can possibly imagine. Because I get to give encouragement or sometimes bring a little bit of technical support to people who are pouring themselves out. I have colleagues that are rotting in prisons in Yemen right now. I had two colleagues in the last month that died of COVID, uh, three in the last year who died in vehicle accidents while bouncing down jungle roads. And you know what? They inspire me because they died doing something they believed was worth dying for. I'll tell you, honestly, I push a lot of papers. I deal with a lot of US government regulations. Um, I'm passionate about what I do for two reasons. Because I believe that the ministry that Jesus Christ has called all of his followers to is one of compassion, mercy, and love first of all. And secondly, when that is not quite enough to get me on the next plane or when I'm puking my guts out or something worse in a, whoa, jungle camp somewhere, I look around at the people that I serve with and I think, thank you, God, for saving me because I don't know if I could put up with everything without literally having the opportunity to look at the people that I serve alongside and going, you know what, it doesn't matter. <laughs> because at the end of the day, when all is said and done, a whole lot more is said than is done. But do not be fooled, my friends. There are armies of people out there, people like you, people that are giving their all. And every time you're tempted to think that this church is irrelevant, that the problems of this world are too overwhelming and there's nothing that can be done about it, just come and ask me to tell you some stories. Um, one of my favorites is just to talk about some of the work that Adra does in Yemen. Yemen is the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Almost 100% of the staff of Adra Yemen, almost 1,000 on the payroll, are conservative, practicing, 
Muslim people. And when I meet them and I talk to them and I say, you know what, what's it like working for a Christian organization in a country where it could be legal, where you could, you could be persecuted, even in prison for being a Christian, let alone in a, in a context where they're facing constant war and deprivation. And they say, you know what, we believe that there's something special about ADRA and we get it. We get it. It's a church. But we believe God is doing something, and we want to be part of it. And it just wrecks me every time. And um, I think God called me into that work to save me. Uh, I needed it. I needed to believe that God's kingdom, no matter how unapparent it may be, is quietly and subversively winning just so you know, Jason is going to be leading our Sabbath School Bible Study experience tomorrow morning and talking about kind of the biblical vision of missions and telling us some more stories. And so uh, you don't want to miss that. Well, thank you so much for sharing from your very own personal perspectives. Now let's going to jump into this idea of, okay, uh, what hope is there for a church that's globally bleeding out young people? Um, what does the future of this church need to look like? Or, or how does the future of this church need to change in order to really be relevant, inspiring, and engaging to young people again? Anita, you were about to speak. Share, share, share your thoughts on that. Well, um, as a parent of young adults, I think that... Um, if we are not authentic and honest and transparent and willing to listen, then you know we can't have a conversation. I think that's very important. Um, yeah, and I think it, it needs to go both ways. I think there's a few things that those of us who are older can share, but I think there's many things, the passion of the young people. And I think that the church has sadly failed at times when it has become inflexible and, um, you know, so heart-shaped in a way that it cannot withstand expansion and change. Um, I think that's a big challenge. You know, your, your comment reminds me of uh, the book You Lost Me by David Kinnaman. And it's so interesting because it documents the journey of those who kind of walked away from church. And one of those was the fact that the church has become so rigid that it does not want to move with the vision and hopes of young people today as well. And uh, that's absolutely a great point, Anita. Thank you for sharing that. I see Philip looking at me. Okay. Um, well, once upon a time, long, long ago, I was a young adult. You were? And I left the church. And I left God. And as I look back, I think in my years, my many years back now, uh, that God dragged me back into it. I'm not like, yes, I ran to it. God came and got me, which is stories for another time. But as I look at it, I think we need to define one thing. And because we don't define this one thing, we have controversy and arguments. And 
not understand what's going on. What is the church? What is the church? The church is not an organization. The church is not a denomination. The church is not a building. That is what helps to empower church. According to Peter, he said, there is a structure. Jesus is the living cornerstone, which gives the true line and form to what is built. And all of us are living stones that are joined together to build up a living structure that is a temple now versus a building, which was the temple in Jerusalem and a structure that was ceremonial and um, such. And that the power that kept this building going is the Holy Spirit in you, in you, in you, in me. Re becoming incarnating Jesus Christ that goes and meets people that each other wouldn't meet, but that you can. And so when we say people are leaving the church, I need to ask, well, what is that? Are you leaving a structure? Because what happens with structures and institutions, which I say, God, I'll follow you, but never bring me to an institution to work. Ha! Don't ever say that to God. 23, 24 years at Loma Linda, the institution. All right. But what I've discovered is, wait a minute. I can get upset if a church doesn't look right, act right, smell right, do right, and leave a building, but I'm not leaving church. I'm leaving a building that houses a family that serves a God and you are a church. And when I learned that, I'm like, well, what am I really leaving? And I think we need to define that. What does that mean? Well, throw away these buildings and all that. No. How many of you like living in a house? Okay. Uh, the house is a box in which you exist in. Don't get mad at the house. You're what's making it live inside. So I think once we do that, we can say, well, wait a minute. What are people leaving? It's easy to point at a structure. I've done that. It's really easy to find hypocrisy anywhere there's more than two human beings. You're going to find hypocrisy. It's easy to say, well, they didn't act right or cheat me right. But that's when I think I have a misconception of what church is. So if we go back to Jesus' concept, what difference would that make for you or all your friends or people you know that aren't here? Yeah, I kind of want to bounce off of that. Um, when, when Praxis first started, um, it was not here. This, well, this building wasn't even here. It's been crazy to come back and see this massive thing that has been built. It's awesome to see that my tuition went towards something uh, nice. <laughs> um, but Praxis used to be back um, in the courtyard. And the way it was structured was we used to kind of get together in little groups. And every Friday night, uh, there would be like three questions that were posed. And for about three years, getting a chance to hear all of you, right, representatives from all over the world. I think Loma Linda U University is a, has a massive sample size of people coming from, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. People are from Tennessee, Michigan, 
Washington, all over the country, and then even further all over the world. And so one of the, 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 the great themes, the, the, the key themes that I saw people struggling with throughout their journey was, and it, it was probably something that was addressed through a, a previous conversation um, during this, the, this series, but a lot of it was people that were hurt by other people in the church. And, you know, with this whole idea of legalism, right? Um, because there is a structure, right, that the, their parents have said, hey, you need to come to, right? And so throughout that journey of kind of listening to people and sharing my story, listening to other people's stories, I kind of found a universal theme of young adults are struggling to see past the people that are running the church and aren't looking high enough, right? Our parents, when we're younger, our you know, worship leaders when we're younger, those are the first people that we could ever imagine God to be, right? Um, but Paul talks to us about maturity, right? When I was a child, I thought as a child. When I was an, uh, you know, an adult, I thought, I thought as an adult. I, I, he became spiritually mature. And I think through that, a lot, a lot of what we need is a safer space as young adults. Um, often people have found that, you know, depending on where you're from, I come from the East Coast, uh, can't play guitar or electric guitar in church, right? Uh, earrings, right? Jewelry, tattoos, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, are we going back to the circumcision conversation that Paul so, you know, uh, easily struck down, even by those who uh, were, were, were Jews at the time? And, and so... Going back to that, I think the future of the church is a lot to do with the history of the church. I've been reading a biography on Paul. It's really interesting what he was able to do going from, you know, the Jerusalem all the way around uh, to Greece. And the focus of his message was churches need to be not in synagogues, structures. They need to be in your homes. They need to live in communities where people are able to be naked and unashamed, right? Because that's the big problem from the beginning in the garden, right? In Eden, Adam and Eve were, they, were they, they had sinned and then they were ashamed. But we're told by Jesus that we are loved and, loved and accepted. And so we need to create a culture of, of kind of inclusion. And I think safe spaces for people to share where they don't feel judged is huge. And through that, though, I think the, the basic functional unit, because we talk about church and then we talk about community, we talk about family, and I kind of led with it in my own testimony, friendship. In many ways, friendship is the ethic. It is the code of conduct that Jesus himself sacrificed for. He said, I, I don't call you my servants, I call you my friends, and then says, there's no greater love than one who lays his life down for a friend. And so I think we need to learn about what friendship truly is and how we can all behave like friends. And in that way, I think through trauma and through, uh, you know, times when we feel judged and times when we feel like we're not accepted, we have a friend um, here on earth, but also a friend in Jesus that, you know, he tells Peter that, you know, the gates of hell will not overcome it, right? This church, right? This, this uh, belief in in him to ultimately come and save us and take us home. Mm. 
Wow. Let me take on the question of why not just pitch the institution. Um, I've had a fraught relationship with the institution for a lot of my life. And Terry, I resonate with what you said. You know, the last place I wanted to be in some ways was, you know, in the stodgy offices where decisions about things that I considered totally irrelevant were being made. And yet I've spent almost 20 years, almost my entire professional career working within the system. And let me tell you one example of why. Mid last summer, I was appointed to a task force that was rolling out COVID-19 programs across the world. We were in contact with United Nations World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization, the US Agency for International Development, and what they were saying is we have resources and we have no access, we have no ability to get to people in need. This is a, during a period of time where human bodies were being stacked like cordwood in the streets of Quito, Ecuador. This is during a time when I won't get graphic here, but let me just tell you that this is during a time when a lot of good-willed people were saying we are completely unprepared, unable to get assistance to the people that need it the most. And it really was touching me and a lot of staff that I work with. I work with staff from 38 different national origins in our international office. It means that almost every person I knew had a family member or a friend that had died, was dying of COVID, or one that was on the front lines working. And that's something you know about in this community. And here's the reason why the institution still has value. Because while the UN, the WHO, the Pan American Health Organization, the United States Agency for International Development, the European Commission on Humanitarian Affairs were paralyzed. The Seventh-day Adventist Church reached 20 million people with COVID relief by March of this year. With less than $26 million. Now, I, I don't, I, you have to take that, think about that for a minute, okay? I want you to think about how much it costs to treat one COVID patient, to deliver one vaccine. And all this was done by a church that boasts fewer than, what, 25 million members? And the way it happened was not depending on some white savior to fly in across the world. The way it happened was local churches opening the doors, going out into the community and risking their lives because they believe that that's what Jesus Christ would have them do. The only thing we were doing was mobilizing resources. 
My friends, we can sit around navel-gazing all day. Woe is me. It's so tough to be here. You are the most privileged class in the history of the world, economically. And I, as a white, straight, upper-middle-class educated male among the most elite class in the history of the world, and we sit around and we whine about the church. But the truth is, if you leave this country and go to our churches around the world, they are primarily young people, and they are not sitting around debating theology or what you should wear or what color the carpet is. They are out in their community being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And here's the interesting thing. Seventh-day Adventists don't have any corner on that market. I'll be honest with you, um, sometimes looking here at North America, I wonder if we're, we're even in the game. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll tell you the truth. The Seventh-day Adventist church around the world is known to be an incredibly dynamic and powerful group of people. And it's not because they're better Christians than the other Christians out there. It's for one simple reason that they're able to mobilize this incredible potential is because there's an institution, okay? So get this. When an earthquake strikes in Haiti and you start seeing the social media appeals from uh, you know, Doctors Without Borders going up and the American Red Cross, by the time you can click to send your money, local Seventh-day Adventist church members are already picking through the rubble. That's the power of a church, and it goes beyond government. It goes beyond international cooperation. There are places I can't tell you that we work right now, that I could not, I, I would not want to endanger the staff. Countries that are closed, countries where people are suffering and there's absolutely no access to them. And yet, hmm. through the local church, with a little bit of assistance, usually in the form of financial assistance and a little bit of technical support, which nerds like me do, the church that looks a whole lot more like you than it does like me is doing incredible things. If you want to be part of something, there's no shortage of opportunity. Don't say it's because nobody's doing anything that you think the church is irrelevant. Mm. Because if you don't see it, you're not looking, and you don't want to see it. Don't be afraid to step up to this responsibility. And I know, trust me, I know how frustrating it is at the old white male patriarchy that runs the church just seem to can't get I can't say what I was about to say, but <laughs> what I'm going to tell you is forget about them. Get out there and yeah, get it yeah. done. Yeah. Woo! Mics are just dropping here. These people who are up here, wow, fire. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you saying that because I think that... Um, we spend a lot of time talking and arguing and discussing. And I honestly think that, you know, there's a 
there's a time to do a little bit of that and planning and talking, but then there's a time to move forward. And I think the counterfeit of the enemy is to put us in different camps and to, to begin to fight over things. You know, should we wear a mask, should we not? Well, what is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? Is the church going to stay? Is it going to require this? Is it not going to require that? Are they, and, it's, and it's this constant, and then I'm going to put it on social media, and I'm going to argue about it, and I'm going to, unlike this person, I'm going to like this person. So as long as, as long as we start distracted, then the enemy has accomplished something, you know? And that's, I think, a very uh, important thing. To, what I hear you saying is like, Get off your distraction thing and just find the place yeah. with a purpose where your gifts can intersect with the need yeah. of the world. Yeah. Can I say one more thing about that? Let me tell you about another distraction of the enemy. Is this idea that this is a zero-sum game. You know what a zero-sum game is? It's a game where there can only be one winner. Because what often happens when we start talking about mission is then we start talking about who are we going to fund, and who's going to get the attention, and who's going to get the resources? Is it going to be international? Is it going to be in the community? Is it going to be in the church? That is such a false dichotomy. Hmm. The truth is, God has no shortage, and there's no shortage of talent in this room. Hmm. Find the thing that your passion and your talent leads you to, and and don't spend your time worrying about what other people are doing, except for to be encouraged. There should be no competition in the church of Jesus Christ. Mm. We, were t- we were talking earlier, I just, and I'm just so inspired by the work that you're doing. And, you know, I, I tell you, church boards sit around and they talk about worries. You know, what if we talk too much about global mission? What's going to happen to local mission? What if we talk too much about outreach? You know, are, are, are people going to show up to play in the worship band? You know what? What if we? Mm. What if we? What if we go out and minister to the community, and then nobody wants to sit in the sanctuary? My friends, stop! Stop! Just stop worrying that mm. God doesn't have enough for everybody. Mm. That is just a small-minded distraction. Find your passion and run with it, and God will supply all your needs mm. according to His riches and glory, Amen. which will blow you away. Amen. If you are bored. It's because you lack imagination. Hmm. Oh, boy. All right, man. You know, the future, the future church, if I can just speak into this just for a moment, and we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately. But I believe we'll be a church that does. The future church will not be a church that simply sits. And I believe the future church that young adults today yearn for is a church that does. And so I challenge each one of you to consider what you are called to do. Uh, you know, we had another question to discuss, and it's just, can you attend church and still call your? Can you simply attend church and call yourself a disciple of Jesus? No. Coming here and listening is only a part. But then the rest is, what are you going to do? The act of coming to worship is the act of coming into the huddle at halftime show and it's you listening to the coach and then you're sent out back into the field to play the game. A lot of people imagine that churches, you're a fan and you're sitting and watching others play. That's a skewed vision of what church is about. The experience of corporate worship, I should say. 
And so I want to challenge each one of you as the band starts making their way up here is to recognize the vision and future is reliant upon you and I being the hands and feet of Jesus. You know, someone was challenging me in this way. I, we were talking about what is it, what's the remnant and then what's the kind of mark of the beast. And it was just this notion of back and forth. And, and the guy who was a professor at Andrews, he said, you know what, Philip? I think it literally comes down to this. It will be those who love in action and those who don't. That's what it's going to come down to. When everyone is crying and in crisis and in fear, it will be those who say, I will sacrifice to give of myself for the cause of my brother and sister in Jesus. And this will be the one who will be my remnant, who will be the one who has received the mark and seal of Jesus because they rest in the assurance of the Holy Spirit upon them that God will supply all their needs and so much more. And so tonight we end this series and I want to thank my guests and friends for being here. And we are so thrilled to also spend some time talking with you. They're going to be around mingling. So please come and see one of them. See how you can get involved and how you can be part of something. As a community here at Praxis, we're so excited. Next weekend, we're going to be sharing about our new outreach and uh, campus engagement teams and some of our other leadership teams. And we want to share ways that you can get involved with the future of this place locally. So may God bless you. I pray that this series was an encouragement to you in some way and that you were challenged to recognize you don't need to walk away. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there. On a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment, it makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.